Where are we? How are we doing? And how can we put choices in place today that will help us become that tomorrow? Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Uh, My name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. It's good to be together. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're with us, and we hope to meet you here face-to-face soon. Uh, Let me start today with a question. What autofills on the search bar of your soul? Let me ask that one more time. What autofills on the search bar of your soul? Because my guess is that if you gave me your cell phone today and you punched in the passcode, I could probably tell a lot about you by what autofills in the search bar on your internet browser. Same thing's true of me. If you go back there to my office right now and you grab my laptop, I bet you could probably learn a lot about me based on what autofills there on Safari or whatever. Like if you go to my laptop and you type in the word how, you might see various things pop up. You might see how to get your kids to sleep at night, or how to watch the MLB playoffs, or how to get grass stains out of your jeans, or how come gas is so expensive right now. Um, If you go to my laptop and you just typed in the letter S, you might see a variety of recent searches come up. Things like spring training tickets for the St. Louis Cardinals, or why the Sandlot is the greatest movie ever made, without question, bar none, no debate. You might see things like uh, sing-along songs for kids or secondhand books. You could probably tell a lot about me by what autofills on my search bar. I could probably tell a lot about you also. And your soul works a lot like a search bar. You and I are creatures of habit, which means that the things you're doing right now are shaping your soul so that in the future, when a situation that comes up and there's a decision that needs to be made, Really, in the moment of decision, the deciding has already been done because your soul is just going to autofill what you should do with what you have already been doing. Uh, Stephen Covey talks about this in his famous book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He says, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a destiny. Now, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet, and I work at a nonprofit, okay? (laughs) But... I bet that I could predict with a pretty high degree of accuracy who you will become in the future by taking a look at your actions in the present. Because the choices you make today influence the person you will become tomorrow. You know this. That's why the greatest threat to your mission in life is not something that is outside of you. It's something that is inside of you. So that being said, here's my uh, challenge for you today. Take the lead with moral courage. Take the lead with moral courage. This is the last week together in our series through the book of Nehemiah, which is a good thing because this wall's getting kind of tall. And uh, to be honest, I'm sick of hearing people make jokes like, hey, Luke, don't you think you need a step stool up there? Like, I get it, okay. (laughs) But here's my challenge to you. Take the lead with moral courage, because if you're gonna do the good work that God has for you, it's going to require courage. You guys have been in these situations before. No matter what situation in life you're in, no matter what phase of life you're in, it's gonna take courage. You've been in these scenarios before where 
all of a sudden the situation starts deteriorating or the people around you start compromising and your call as a follower of Jesus in that moment is gonna be to put a stake in the ground and to take the lead with moral courage, to continue to stand even in the middle of that. And when that moment comes, that calls for courage. The thing about courage is, courage isn't just something you can sum up out of thin air. It's not something that you can just make instantly materialize inside of you. Courage is a habit. Courage is something that you build up choice by choice, moment by moment, day by day, so that when that moment of decision comes, your heart will just autofill with moral courage. That's what I want for me, that's what I want for you as well. So if we wanna become people of moral courage together, then we're gonna explore that this morning in Nehemiah chapter 13. We've been in this story about this guy named Nehemiah who feels a burden from God to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that have been knocked down. And we've walked through this together. And, and, and we've said that this story of the good work that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem did to rebuild those walls, that's not just a story from a long time ago. It also intersects with your story because the Bible says that you have been made to do good work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. So today's the day we're gonna give you guys some little concrete blocks and we want you to write on those my good work is blank whatever the good work is that God has called you to fill in that blank right there and we've said just like Nehemiah that your good work will always start with a burden a burden that God has given you and just like Nehemiah did we want to soak that burden in prayer we want to make a plan we want to get people together you're going to encounter opposition just like he did you're going to encounter distraction just like he did But if you choose to focus and let God work on you so that he can then work through you, then you're gonna be able to accomplish the good work that he's given you. 52 days, Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem, they rebuild the wall, it's an amazing accomplishment. And then last week, after they rebuilt the wall, we left off in chapter 12. The people all get together. They're having this big party to celebrate what God has done. They're praying, they're worshiping, and together, all the people make a commitment. They dedicate themselves. They say, no matter what, we're going to follow the Lord. And that would have been a great place to end this story. Like roll credits right there. Everybody lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, that's not where the story ends. And things start to head south here in the last chapter of the book, Nehemiah chapter 13. It tells us that Nehemiah, he went on to serve as the governor of Jerusalem after that for about 12 years. Things were going really well. But then he makes a trip back to Persia to go visit his old buddy, the king. He spends some time in Persia. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he finds out that while he's been gone, everything has fallen apart. The place has just become a mess at every possible level. It's this rather shocking turn of events. Like if I was Nehemiah coming back and seeing this, I'd be thinking, guys, come on. What happened? Like you saw God work on your behalf. We did this thing together. You made a commitment to follow him. I didn't even make you make that commitment. You made it of your own accord. What happened? How did we get here? And maybe you've felt that before. Like maybe you've made a commitment. Maybe you've made some vows. Maybe you've set some goals that just didn't happen. And and you wake up in the morning and you say, all right, today is the day that I'm gonna be different. Today I'm gonna be better as a spouse. Today I'm gonna be better as a parent. Today I'm gonna change the way I operate at work. I'm gonna spend money differently. I'm gonna eat differently. I'm gonna change the way I talk. I'm gonna quit drinking. I'm gonna kick that habit. Never again. I'm gonna be different from here on out. But then a few weeks later, it's like same old thing, same old you, right? Anybody else been there? I have. And and we're left wondering, what happened? Maybe you've felt that before. Like, how did I get here? And for most people, whether it's your story or you're hearing somebody else's, for most people, it's not like they make a one-time decision to abandon God and forsake his mission for their lives and train wreck everything. It happens really slowly. 
over time, choice by choice, moment by moment, decision by decision, day by day. I read a story this week um, of a lady who had a pet python. Now, that seems like a really bad idea. I don't know why anybody would ever want a snake for a pet. It seems like just asking for trouble, okay? But she had this pet python, and she really loved this snake. She loved this snake so much that every night she would let this snake sleep in bed with her, okay? I'm not condoning this. I'm just saying that's what happened, okay? But so she would, like, she would lay down to go to sleep, and then the snake would lay down next to her and like stretch out there on the bed alongside her. And she loved this snake, but like eventually the snake stopped eating, wouldn't eat all the favorite meals she used to make for it. And so she's like, something's wrong. So she takes the python to the vet and the vet starts asking her all these questions. And along the way, the vet's like, well, does your snake ever stretch out along beside you? And she says, yeah. The vet says, oh, your snake isn't sick. It's starving itself to prepare for its next meal. And you're on the menu. (laughs) It was sizing her up. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but y'all, here's the truth. The Bible says you've got an enemy who wants to stand in the way of you becoming the person God made you to be and doing the work God wants you to do. And that day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice, decision by decision, he's gonna stretch out alongside you. He's gonna size you up to see what you're made of. And in that moment, I want your habits to kick in. And I want the search bar of your soul to autofill with the moral courage of Jesus himself. So we're gonna explore this whole concept of moral courage today. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13. Words will be on your screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you can open them with me. We're just gonna kind of walk down through the chapter here, chunk by chunk. Nehemiah writes this in verses one through three. He says, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call down a curse on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now, you may read that, that might rub you the wrong way, but let me remind you that this command to like get the foreigners out of here is not a racist thing, it's not an ethnocentric thing, not a xenophobic kind of thing, it's not a nationalistic kind of thing. Foreigners were actually always welcome to be among God's people if they were willing to follow the laws of God. And, and, and there's a whole lot of laws God gave his people about how to show hospitality to foreigners. But what Nehemiah is saying here, he's saying, hey, listen, You guys are intermingling with and you're adopting the customs of people that you're letting be in your midst who worship other gods and you're tolerating it and it's polluting your devotion to the Lord. And listen, guys, I don't know if you remember, but that's why our great-grandparents got this city knocked down and all of us sent into exile in the first place. And so Nehemiah has the moral courage to stand up and say, let's change the story. We're not gonna do that again. But look what happens. Verses four through eight. It says, before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, pause right there. You might recognize the name Tobiah. He showed up lots of times through the book of Nehemiah, and he's always been an enemy. So for one, Nehemiah tells us he's an Ammonite. He doesn't worship God. And for two, this has been the dude all along who's been trying to stop the wall from getting built. But Nehemiah never let him inside the city. But now that Nehemiah's gone, all of a sudden, they don't just let him inside the city. Now he's living in the temple. 
Nehemiah says, and he'd provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I had asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. So Nehemiah, he doesn't dilly-dally around here. When he finds out there's an enemy living in the house of God, he doesn't like get a committee together to come up with the best action plan. He doesn't give him a 30-day eviction notice or a really nice severance package. He just grabs all Tobiah's junk and tosses him out on the curb. You guys know this because if there's a snake saddling up to you, it's best to get rid of the snake, right? Don't let him hang around. So Nehemiah takes the lead here with moral courage to preserve the purity of the people's worship. He also takes the lead with moral courage in their finances. Take a look at this, verses 10 through 12. Nehemiah says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. So Nehemiah, he finds out here the the people have stopped giving. The priests can't work at the temple anymore. They gotta go get food to eat. And Nehemiah knows that the people of God should never expect to receive the fullness of God's blessing if they're not willing to give him the fullness of their obedience. So he gets the people to start giving again. He takes the lead with moral courage and finances. He also takes the lead in their business dealings. Take a look at this, verse 15. Nehemiah says, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was this idea where God made the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested as kind of an ordinance for his people. It's like, hey, you all can work for six days, but on the seventh day, I want you to take a break to rest, to reconnect with each other and to worship me, to trust me and remember what I've done for you. But the people in Jerusalem, they're kind of like, hey, there's a little loophole. Let's get people to work seven days, a little more profit, you know. And Nehemiah shuts it down. Now, as much as I wish Chick-fil-A were open for lunch today, right? (laughs) There's a little bit of wisdom there. Now, I want you to be good at your job. I want you to like hustle, climb the ladder, like be a great employee, be a great boss, make money for the glory of God. Do it, hit it and get it. But, the moment your work gets in the way of your worship, have the moral courage to say no. And here's the toughest one of all. Nehemiah takes the lead with moral courage in family relationships. Dun, 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 okay? Verse 23. Moreover, he says, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. 
I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Now again, hear what's not being said here. God's not against interracial marriage. That's not a thing. This is not a racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. God knows that if you bond your heart to somebody whose heart is not bonded to him, it's gonna be really hard for you to follow God in the way you're called to. That's not just an Old Testament long time ago thing. That's a New Testament thing too. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter six, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And parents, grandparents, this is so important to teach our kids. Won't be fun, but it is good. You gotta tell them, like, listen, it doesn't matter how cute they are or how much chemistry you got when your personalities click. Like, if that person doesn't love Jesus, don't date them. It ain't smart. And you could probably imagine all the little Israelite boys and girls didn't like this rule very much. They're saying, Nehemiah, but she's cute. <laughs> I really love her. She's a really nice gal. And, and my buddy, he married this Ammonite girl. She became a Jew after a few years. I think it'll work out okay, the whole missionary dating thing, you know? But Nehemiah, he knows that God is so deadly serious about this. He knows what a heavy and weighty and important thing it is that he goes to the fathers who are failing to lead their families in this way. He starts yanking out their hair. He starts pulling out their beards. I think I'm safe, but some of you look like you're hurting, you know? And, and the reason he does that isn't because he's in some kind of an uncontrollable rage, but because as the governor of the city, it was his responsibility to help make sure that the people were spiritually leading their families well. So when he would go yank out a guy's beard, he's saying, hey, listen, your beard says you're a man. But because you're failing to lead your family, you're acting like a little boy. And so you're gonna look like a little boy until you can grow your honor back. Now, if you're like me, you read that and you think, whoa, easy there, Nehemiah. You've gone from being this like wise, admirable, brave leader guy to being a little bit of a wild-eyed fanatic and I'm not sure what happened. Kicking people out, having people arrested, calling down curses on them and yanking out hair. Like it seems like a little bit much, right? But the reason Nehemiah is being so fanatical about addressing this is he knows where it leads. He remembers their great-grandparents who'd done the exact same thing, and that's what made the city get knocked down and all the people hauled into exile in the first place. And we've seen over this series, Nehemiah has spent this whole story taking the lead with moral courage. He makes decisions that are risky and dangerous and bold and he soaks it all in prayer and he has done this over and over and over again so much so that it's just become habit. So that now when he steps back into the situation and he sees a snake kind of sizing up the people and standing in the way of the good work God wants for them to do, it's just the default. His search bar auto-fills with moral courage and a zero-tolerance policy for sin. He just made it a habit. And this is our calling to, to train our families in wise spiritual habits. I can remember my dad, um, growing up, he like wanted to train us first-time obedience, like obey first, ask questions later. And so he would always tell us kids this little story. And he'd tell us this story about how there was this missionary family and off in the bush somewhere. And, and one of the little boys was playing on the floor of the living room when the father came into the room and he said, son, come here. 
And because the son had been trained to obey first time, immediately he got up and came over to his dad, which was a good thing because a viper had just slithered in the room behind him. Now, I have no idea if that story is true or not. It's probably not. But it was enough to scare little seven-year-old Luke into thinking that obeying the first time was a good idea. So now I tell it to my three kids too. And, and, and this is our calling to develop wise habits so that when a crisis moment comes up, the search bar of your soul will autofill with the moral courage necessary to do the good work God has for you to do. And I was just, in reflecting on this this week, I just was really thankful that I've gotten to be the recipient of people who put those habits in place early in their life. Um, my, my grandpa, Don, on my mom's side, he was a Navy man in World War II, and so when the war ended and he got out of the Navy, he talked like a sailor, he smoked and drank like a sailor, and he got married and he started farming. He wasn't really a Christian, but then he realized one day when his kids started asking for a drink of whatever he was drinking, that it was time to change. And so he dropped it all cold turkey. He got in church. He went on to become an incredibly godly man, an elder in the church. I get to wear his wedding ring. It's my hero. I'm thankful that he took the lead in that moment with moral courage. My other grandparents on my dad's side, my grandma was a Christian. My grandpa was not. They kind of sort of liked each other, but she made it pretty clear like, hey, this thing ain't going very far if you don't follow Jesus. And so he thought she was cute. So he jumped in and started following Jesus. And I'm, I'm thankful that I've gotten to be the beneficiary of a legacy like that. Uh, This last weekend, um, on Friday and Saturday, our family, we went down to Lexington, Kentucky, because my brother-in-law was graduating from the Lexington Fire Academy, so we got to celebrate with him, and my brother-in-law, his name's Tristan, we've been friends for a long time, we went to college together, he went to Bible college, he wanted to go do ministry, but he graduates Bible college, and he realizes, man, God's actually calling me to something different, I think the good work God has for me is to go be a fireman back in my home state, and so he goes back to Kentucky, and we just got to celebrate with him as he's doing the good work God has for him. And as I sat there on Friday with my boys and we got to watch Uncle T walk across the stage and he didn't just get his badge, but he also got the award out of everybody in the fire academy for being the one who worked the hardest and went the extra mile the most. And my boys asked, Dad, why, why did Uncle T get that award? And I said, buddy, Uncle T follows Jesus. And so he works as if he's working for Jesus and not just for his boss. That's why he works harder than anybody else. I'm so thankful for my brother-in-law taking the lead even in the fire academy, with moral courage. And I want your family to get to have that kind of story too. I want the people who come after you to be able to tell those kinds of stories about you. So maybe wherever you're sitting today, maybe you're thinking, okay, I'm in, ready to do the good work God has for me. I wanna become a person of moral courage. How do we do it? I got three little suggestions for you. Here's the first one. Take a moral inventory. Take a moral inventory. Maybe you're hearing all this and you're thinking, hey, that sounds great, but I've already blown it. I've already missed my shot. Uh, those relationships, those opportunities, that has passed me by. I've got years and years and years of bad habits in place. I think it's too late. But I'm here to tell you, Jesus is alive, which means it's never too late. And way back in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, and then in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are there in the garden, and the snake slithers up in the garden. He starts sizing Eve up and whispering little lies to her, trying to tempt her to eat this forbidden fruit that God had asked her not to eat. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but in that moment, Eve was not alone. The text actually implies that Adam was right there alongside her. And Eve ended up eating the fruit. That was her first sin. But Adam's first sin was spiritual passivity. Just standing by and doing nothing instead of stepping in to protect his wife from the lies of the snake. 
And Adam ends up eating the fruit too, and then they go hide, and then God comes to look for him, and he finds them, obviously. I don't know if you've ever tried to hide from God, it doesn't work very well. And God asks them these two key questions, these questions that haunt me. He says, where are you, and what have you done? Where are you, and what have you done? And I don't know about you, but I don't wanna stand in front of my creator someday knowing that I let a snake slither up alongside my family and having him ask me, where were you? What have you done? Why didn't you do anything? So if we wanna avoid that conversation then, we kinda actually have to have that conversation now. So my encouragement to you is sit down. As a couple, sit down with a trusted friend, even if your kids are old enough, sit down with your kids and just take a moral inventory as a family. Hey, where are we? What are we doing? What are the things we're doing that are good that we need to do more of? What are we doing bad that we need to stop? What are we doing okay at that we need to change? What kind of relationships do we wanna have here? How do we wanna talk in this family? What kind of goals do we have for our time together and how we schedule our calendar and what we do with our money and our relationship with God? What, what kind of a family do we wanna be? Where are we? How are we doing? And how can we put choices in place today that will help us become that tomorrow? And I'm encouraging you, it's awkward to have that conversation, I know, but do it and do it with the kind of ruthless honesty as if a python were sizing up your family. Take a moral inventory. Here's the second thing. Practice courage in community. Practice courage in community. I don't know if you've heard the old one about the the mom who went to the little middle school marching band parade to watch her son, and after the parade, she said, well, the parade was really great, but the whole marching band was out of step except for my little Charlie. And you can laugh at that, right? But the fact is, if you're gonna be a person who takes the lead with moral courage, if you're gonna have the willingness to say, Jesus is Lord, which means that Jesus is the Lord of my schedule, Jesus is the Lord of my finances, Jesus is the Lord of the way I spend my free time, Jesus is the Lord of how we handle our family interactions, Jesus is the Lord of the way I approach vacations and retirement and friendship and time. If you're gonna say Jesus is Lord, that means you're gonna march to the beat of a different drummer than everybody else. That's hard, because I don't know about you guys, but I'm kind of a wimp, (laughs) and I like people to like me. And I feel the pressure to be normal. And it's not fun sometimes to feel like you're the one who's different. That's why it's so important, the people that you choose to place around you. I don't know if your mom used the example with you growing up, but like you've heard the example of the, the, imagine you're standing on top of a building holding one end of a rope and 10 of your friends are down there on the ground holding the other end of the rope and you're kind of pulling against each other. What's more likely to happen? You pulling them up or them pulling you down? But now imagine you've got 25 other friends up there with you on the top of the building. Might change the story a little bit. Listen, you gotta be in a group. If you don't have good Jesus-following friends around you who know what's going on, who can help speak into those decisions, we wanna get you in a group here. You can always go to the groups tab on the website or go to the info center out there in the hub. We gotta get you in a group because a lone ranger is a dead ranger, all right? Practice courage in community. And here's the third thing. Look toward the king. Take a moral inventory, practice courage in community, and look toward the king. Because I don't know what you feel, but the way this story of Nehemiah ends is a little bit of a downer. Not quite the victorious ending we wanted, like the people all make these commitments, and then they don't keep them. And Nehemiah's running around pulling out people's hair, and he's pulling out his own hair, and he still can't change their hearts. 
And the story ends with this city that's been restored, but they still don't have a king. And so everybody's just kind of desperately looking forward, peering into the darkness, wondering if there's somebody who's gonna finally come who has the moral courage to fulfill God's mission completely. Somebody who can finally kill the snake. Somebody who's gonna have what it takes to finally fix what's messed up inside of us. And we get to know the end of the story. The good news is we get to read this story through the lens of the cross to know that Jesus did come, the king did show up. And Nehemiah here in this chapter, he seems like a little bit of a radical. And that's what people thought of Jesus too. You might remember the scene where Jesus walks into the temple and he sees that like they've turned this place of worship into a place of bartering and selling and trading and they're hindering foreigners from being able to worship and they're distracting people from their devotion to prayer. And Jesus doesn't just like say, now guys, we need to rethink this a little bit. Like Jesus goes full Indiana Jones on him and he makes his own whip and he just starts driving people out. And the gospels tell us that when Jesus' disciples saw the moral courage that he had, it says this, it says his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed with a passion for the Lord that gave him the moral courage so that when a snake was saddling up alongside the people that he loved and threatening to derail the good work that God had given him, his search bar just auto-filled with the moral courage to take a stand. That's what I want for you, that's what I want for me as he lives inside of us to make us like him. Because you can't transform yourself. This isn't just Luke telling you today to try harder to be braver. This is me reminding you that man, as you follow Jesus, as you wake up every day and you say, God, what are you saying to me? And what do you want me to do about it? And you become convicted of the mission that he's given you. And you become a person who makes decisions boldly and in prayer. When the moment of crisis arises, you will have the strength to take a stand. Because that's what Jesus did, moment by moment, choice by choice, day by day, turning away from what was evil, turning toward what was good, and it led him all the way to the cross where he died for you and for me, and he rose again, and now he lives inside of us. And he's making all the wrong things right in the world little by little through us as his people until the day that he comes back. And my prayer is that when he comes back like Nehemiah came back, we wouldn't be as big of a mess as they were. But that little by little, he would give us the courage to join him in his work of bringing his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. Would you join me in prayer? God, we love you. Uh, Thank you so much for coming, for seeing us and for saving us, for even choosing to partner with us to live in us, to do what it is that you wanna do here. And for all of us, God, you've given us opportunities, you've given us experiences, you've given us relationships, you've given us passions and abilities. So my prayer for my brothers and sisters and for me is that you'd show us really clearly what it is, the good work that you have for us, and that you would give us the moral courage to bring it through to completion by your strength. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and worship our King. 